Esther chapter 4, verses 4 through 17. Okay. So, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. I think I probably read a different version, but you could probably follow along. Okay. So are you ready? Are you ready? Right? Okay. So there's this guy named Michael Buffer who has an awesome job. He's a ring announcer. So at boxing matches or at major sporting events, he gets paid very handsomely to introduce the contestants and other his most famous catchphrase, let's get ready to rumble. But before he does that, he asks the audience a question and he says, are you ready? Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready? Now, this guy was all over my life in the 1990s because he used to work for WCW. So every time Goldberg came out or Sting came out, this guy would announce him and say, let's get ready to rumble. But if you take a step back and you think about his setup question, are you ready? It's one of those things that kind of infiltrates our lives like the air that we breathe. It's everywhere. As a child, every morning, your parents would growl at you, hey, are you ready? As they're rushing you to get out the door and get to school. Hey, did you eat your cereal? Did you brush your teeth? Did you pack your bag? Did you do your homework? Stop touching your sister. Are you ready? Let's go. And I dreaded this question so much that I used to sleep in my school uniform, which included like a button-up shirt and a tie, just to save myself one step. So when my mom asked, are you ready? I'd be like, yes, I'm ready to go. 
Are you ready? This week, Jen and I moved out of our apartment, and while we were packing, we found our go bag. Uh, back in March 2020, we got really scared uh, by the pandemic, so we went shopping and bought a bag of emergency supplies, and we found it. It had Band-Aids, it had contact lens solution, it had a flashlight, it had hydrogen peroxide, it had Vaseline, and there were also some pretty strange things in there. I made sure to pack some high chews because I read that under times of extreme stress, like a world-ending apocalypse, sugary treats can calm you down by suppressing your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the part of your brain that causes stress. We also had these huge waterproof blue tarps, and the idea was like, if we ever had to run into the woods and live there without shelter, we would use these tarps to cover ourselves and protect us against the elements. I mean, it's ridiculous. And then, you know, when we saw all this stuff again, Jen was like, hey, if it ever gets to a point where we got to use these tarps, we're done. We're not going to make it anyway. So let's lose the tarps. Are you ready? There's a huge catastrophic event that's coming. And this question kind of like, it still makes my armpits like a little sweaty and makes me like fill with anxiety and a little bit of dread. I'm like, I don't know, am I ready? And Christianity has its own version of this question. Some of us, maybe we feel like a little directionless. We're not sure what God wants us to do. And we're waiting for him to kind of open up the heavens and say, hey, you, this is exactly the place and the person that I'm calling you to go to and to talk with. Are you ready? But I bet a lot more of us would rather not hear that question and dread hearing this question. Hey, you, now that you've built up your career, now that you've built up your resume, now that you've got some money in your checking account, now that you have some healthy relationships, now that you actually have something worth risking and something to offer, are you ready to give it up? Are you ready to follow me? In this passage, Esther is being asked, hey, are you ready? And specifically, she's being asked, are you ready to risk your life and to save my people? And for her and for us, this question is like an open flame underneath an alchemist still. It separates the essence from the junk, and it sharpens our senses, and it makes us ask ourselves, why have I been blessed with all that I've got? What's my life's purpose? What's important to me? Am I ready? So before we look at how Esther responds, let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for giving us this day. There's so much that's going on around us, but we can claim with the psalmist that you've been so, so good to us. We look at our life, and when we're able to just, like, pause that um, constant momentum, we can humbly say we have received much more than we deserve, and we worship a God who is completely worthy. And what I pray is that you would fill our hearts and our spirits with your presence and with a sense of purpose. You have blessed us immensely, but help us to know why you've done so and what you're calling us to do. God, we pray that you would send your spirit and speak to us today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so what events brought Esther to her Are You Ready moment? The book of Esther is like a classical comedy where everything turns out happy in the end and there's some reversals. It's also like a satirical political comedy. It takes place at the end of the 5th century BCE, 
About a hundred years after the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had decimated Judah and all the Jewish people had been spread out throughout the entire known world. Now by the book of Esther, the Babylonian kingdom had expanded and morphed into the Persian Empire, ruled by Cyrus, then Darius, and then Ahasuerus, who most people identify as Xerxes I. And Ahasuerus was the king of Persia and one of the main characters in the book of Esther. He's like this impulsive guy who likes to drink a lot and he's completely oblivious and superficial. And his stupidity basically sets in motion a potential genocide where all of the Jews were to be wiped out of the Persian Empire. Now within his court, there is an advisor named Haman. And he was an Agagite, an appellation that identifies him as a descendant of one of the ancient enemies of Israel. And he was the number two man in all of Persia. He was so important that Xerxes commanded, every time you see Haman walking around the street, you have to bow down and give him his respect. Now, one day Haman's walking around with his chest up, you know, like, I'm the man. And then everyone's bowing down to him. He feels good. And this one guy, Mordecai, who's a Jew, doesn't bow down. And Haman sees everybody bowing down. He's so happy. And he sees this one dude over there sitting by the gate who's not bowing down. And he sees that one guy and his heart starts to burn. Now, this is the type of guy Haman is. He's so petty, so insecure, so whatever, that not only does he want to kill Mordecai, he wants to kill all the people who are related to Mordecai and everybody that Mordecai represents. So he bribes the king and says, here's 10,000 talents of silver. On this day, 11 months from today, I want you to slaughter all of the Jews in 127 provinces throughout the Persian Empire. Now, Mordecai was not just the person who set off this set of events, but he's also Esther's uncle and adoptive father. And it's right after this news that this genocide is about to happen that Esther 4 picks up. Mordecai's in front of the king's gate. He's weeping and mourning because his people are about to be victims. And his adopted daughter, Esther, is concerned, so she sends her attendants and says, go find out what's wrong with Mordecai. And Mordecai explains all that had happened, that the Jews were going to be killed. And this is what causes Esther to be asked, hey, Esther, are you ready to do something about this? Are you ready to risk it all and all of your success and everything that you have so that you can save your people? Now, how do you get ready for a moment like that? You know, you're just going throughout your daily life and all of a sudden something happens in front of you and you got to respond with your very life. It reminds me of that guy, um, Wesley Autry, who was um, a construction worker and a Navy veteran who was on the subway one day and he saw this guy having a seizure on the train tracks. And he's with his daughter and he's like, I got to do something. A train is coming. So he leaves his daughter on the platform. He jumps onto the tracks pulls this guy down and makes sure that both of their heads are under a certain level and the train passes over their head. And when he was asked about this, he said, I was looking at the platform and I saw this guy on the ground and I heard a voice in my head that said, somebody's got to help this fool. And then he said to himself, that person is you, go do this. And he jumped down there and he saved this guy's life. Now, it reminds you of that. You're just kind of going throughout your life. Esther is successful, wonderful, and then all of a sudden, this cold water gets splashed on her face, and she says, hey, are you ready to give all of this up and save my people? How can you get ready for a moment like that? Now, although Esther didn't know it, she had subtly been doing certain things that put herself in a position to meet this challenge. 
And her preparation also gives us some guidance on how we should start thinking about our own lives and how we can prepare to be ready to follow God. So what did Esther do? The first thing she did, she identified her greatest strengths and she invested in them. By the time Mordecai challenged Esther, she was the queen of Persia in the court of Xerxes I. But she did not start out that way. We are told that she was a Jewish exile or an immigrant, if you like, living in Persia. She had a Jewish name that she probably used with her family, which was Hadassah. And she had a Persian name that she used when she was out amongst the Persians, Esther. If you're an immigrant, you know this feeling that you have a name that you use with your family. You have a name that you use in the outside world. Not only was she in exile, but she was an orphan. Both of her parents had died when she was young, and she had been adopted by her uncle, who was also living in Persian Empire, whose name was Mordecai. Now, as most immigrants know, when you're trying to succeed in a foreign land, you can't rely on connections, you can't rely on traditions, and you can't count on the status quo. You have to rely on your skills, and you have to rely on your talent. And Esther had one superpower. She was beautiful. Maybe the most beautiful woman in all of the Bible. And it was this superpower that gave her the ability to gain enough influence in Persia to be able to do something to help God's people. Now, let's take a step back. In the modern age, we have this ambivalent relationship towards beauty. On the one hand, we can recognize that beauty is an incredible asset in today's world. It can make you famous, it can make you powerful, it can get you a reality TV show, you can become an influencer, you can get a thousand subscriptions, and you can start making a lot of money. No, not a thousand, a million. I don't think you get anything for a thousand subscriptions. But on the other hand, I think most of us probably think beauty, at least physical beauty, is overvalued. And it seems to be a little like superficial when compared to other types of skills and talents like creativity or intelligence. And I think most of us also recognize that beauty is gendered. We have this thing where like, whenever we see certain people that we haven't seen in a while, they'll always come up to Arlo and go, oh, you're so pretty. And I kind of take offense at it because then they also follow it up by saying, you look more and more like your mother. <laughs> and I was like, wait, she was looking like me a couple months ago and now she's prettier. But we don't like it because we feel like, oh, there's already so much pressure on little girls to look pretty and look beautiful. So we always say like, you look powerful or you look strong or you look smart or something like that. So we recognize that beauty in today's world is gendered as well as what we see in this book. It goes back a long, long time. Beauty is a gendered concept. So as modern people, a part of us should feel really kind of uncomfortable with this superpower that Esther has, and we should want to challenge the world that she's living in. And we're not alone. The Bible also talks about beauty in this way. My favorite example of this, Proverbs 11.22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without wisdom. So the Bible acknowledges that beauty, physical beauty, is of secondary importance. But when you read through the whole book of Esther, there's one thing that you should know. Esther is not a book that challenges the structures of society. It's not a book that asks you to protest and asks you to resist. It accepts the world as given. The king that's in the middle of the story is an impulsive, drunken idiot. The, the models of love and romance are patriarchal and oppressive to women. But Esther, the book, takes these as given and says, hey, this is the world. So what can we do in this world? How can I work? with the world as it is. And this is one of the responses there. And one of the answers is to identify your strengths and to build on them. If you're smart, then write and solve problems. If you're an athlete, then go play some basketball. If you're creative, make the greatest works of art that you can. Whatever your strength is, use it. 
But Esther was not only beautiful, but she spent time developing her beauty to make herself even more attractive. This is the background. Xerxes I, as I mentioned, was a drunken idiot. So he's having a party that's lasting 187 days. And on the 187th day, he goes, I'm married to a very beautiful woman named Vashti. And I want her to come so that I can show her off to all of my friends. And Vashti's like, this is stupid. I'm not going to go in front of your drunken friends and show off my beauty. So she refuses. And he dismisses her and sends her away. And so, you know, as predicted, after a couple of days, he's like, man, I'm lonely. <laughs> I shouldn't have dismissed my wife so quickly. So his advisor's like, I got a great idea. Let's collect all of the most beautiful women in all of your lands and have a beauty pageant. And whoever wins this beauty pageant will get to become the new queen of Persia. And Esther, because of her great beauty, is chosen and becomes a part of this beauty pageant. Now, in chapter 2, what we find out is that Esther took her beauty to the next level. It tells us she spent six months being pampered, having her skin massaged with oil of myrrh, and then another six months having her skin massaged with spices and ointments. On a side note, when I told Jen what I'd be preaching about, and I told her that Esther spent a whole year getting massages and facials, she's like, that's my girl. <laughs> this is the Bible hero that I've been waiting for. So God has given her this great gift, and she spends time making it even better. And this is something that um, I first started thinking about, actually, a conversation I had with Peter. We were talking sometime in December about, like, how our lives were going. And he had this phrase, like, yeah, there's just certain things in my life that I'm trying to level up. And I'm like, oh, level up. I know that. I play video games. I understand that analogy. And that's what Esther's doing. She's leveling up. She's seeing what she's good at. And she's saying, I got to make myself better at these things. Now, this is a theological truth. All of us have been given gifts to build up the body. That's what the book of Ephesians says. Ephesians 4, 7, Paul talks about how God is up in the sky and pours out his gifts on his people, and each of us has been given something that we can use to build up his body. Now, even though that's theologically true, I'm willing to bet a lot of us don't really feel like we're being used by God, or we don't really feel like that we have these gifts that God can use to build people up. And when I reflect on our church and what we've experienced, I think there are a few reasons we might feel this way. I think the first thing is pretty obvious. We're always looking at other people's gifts and thinking, man, if I had that gift, then I could do something. And this is an old problem. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, how people use the gift of tongues to make other people feel jealous. But he's like, hey, you have a certain gift. Use your gift. But this comparison is kind of natural. Everyone wants to be the quarterback. Nobody grows up saying, I want to be the kicker. Um, everyone wants to be a lead singer, and nobody says, I want to mix sound when I grow up. Uh, we value other people's gifts more than our own, and it keeps us from seeing and using what God has actually given us. Fair enough. I think another reason, a lot of us grew up with limited horizons, and we don't permit ourselves the freedom to explore our full potential. And Jen and I talk about this often, but like Esther, we grew up as immigrants in a place where we didn't have a lot of role models in other positions in society. Our parents also had a very limited view of success, and they were drawn to prestige institutions, Ivy League colleges, professional careers, high name recognition companies that they could basically tell their friends, oh, my son or daughter works for blank, and that people would recognize blank and go, oh, okay, you're doing well. Now, as a result, many of us have been chasing success in what are ending up being dying fields and trying to make ourselves fit into roles that maybe that's not where our strengths are at. And Jen and I talk about how if we had just been born maybe five to 10 years later, 
then everything would be completely different. We'd see different people who look like us succeeding in places that we had never thought would be possible. And I just think like, man, if I had been born five to 10 years later, I wouldn't be a lowly Latin teacher. I'd be like this great TikTok influencer <laughs> and have all of these powers. Now, whatever the reason might be, I think we're slow to say, hey, this is what I'm good at. These are my gifts. This is what God has given me. And now we have to answer the question, am I ready to use this gift to do something? But that's not the only thing that Esther does. The other thing that she does, without even knowing it, is she starts building relationships with people. Now, specifically, there's two types of people that Esther builds relationships with. First, she builds relationships with new people in her new world. She started off as an orphan, but through God's providence, she became the queen. And along the way, she made many friends. When she was first chosen for her beauty contest, the Bible tells us she found favor with a eunuch named Hegai, who was in charge of the entire pageant. And he would slip her extra cosmetics, extra food, and gave her seven maidens to make sure that she was taken care of. Think about like uh, Lumiere or Cogsworth in Beauty and the Beast or Stanley Tucci and Emily Blunt in The Devil Wears Prada. You need like these in-between intermediary guys to take you to the next level in a new world. You're like, I don't know. And then a candle shows up and says, this is the way. Or Stanley, shows up, uh, Stanley Tucci shows up and gives you a great wardrobe. You need people like this in this new world to show you the next steps. But the most important relationship she had outside of Mordecai was the king the king of the Persian Empire, Ahasuerus. Now, throughout history, this relationship has given great anxiety to biblical scholars. And the reason is Jewish women are not supposed to marry Gentiles, even if they are rulers. And throughout, scholars have raised important questions about personal ethics and personal piety, saying this is not right. There's something quite that doesn't fit about this picture. And they raise an excellent point, but we have to remember that if it wasn't for this relationship, Esther would not have been in a position to do anything to help save the Jews. So the lesson for us is this. We can only be ready to answer God's call in our life when we have relationships with people outside of the church, when we have relationships with all different kinds of people, even if we don't agree with everything that they stand for. In many cases, it's these very relationships that we'll need to draw upon in order to do something for God or for people in need. Think about the Bible. There's many examples of this. Joseph being raised to a high position in Pharaoh's court, and he has a dream, and because of that, Joseph interprets that dream and saves millions of lives by warning people that there's a famine. Think again about Nehemiah, who is cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes, and because of his position in that court, he was able to plead with him, give us resources, send the people back, and he was able to go back and build the wall in Jerusalem. In order for us to obey God's call in our lives, we have to build relationships with the people around us and even people who don't agree with everything that we stand for. But the other type of relationship that we need in order to be ready is we need relationships like Esther had with Mordecai. Somebody who has been with her from the beginning, somebody who knew all of the things that God had done for her and knew about God's history for Israel. Even though Esther was married to a king, Mordecai was the most impactful person in her life. And he reminded her of who she was, why she had been blessed, and what God was calling her to do. In verse 13, it says, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. To make it very specific for our context, good news, we have to build relationships with people inside the church and outside of the church. Here at Good News, we worship together, we study God's word together, we pray together, we fellowship together. And every time we meet like this or virtually, our spirits are bonded together with holy fire. And because of that, we can encourage each other with God's promises. We can cover over each other with powerful prayers. We can speak the truth in love, challenging one another to say, hey, are you really doing all that you should be doing for the sake of the gospel? Now, if we stop the message right here, I think many of us would be happy because it'd be very short. I always love short messages. And I basically said, like, in order to be ready to serve God's people, you need to have friends and you need to get facials. That, who's going to disagree with that? Sign me up. I'm there. But this is where we see something in the gospel that turns many people off. And that is this. At some point, we have to take everything that we've earned, everything that we've received, everything that makes us who we are, and lay it on the line to help others. In Esther chapter 4, verses 11, Esther tells why it's so difficult for her to do this. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends a gold scepter to them and spares their lives. You can't just walk up to the king and say, hey, buddy, we got to talk. If you do that, he has every right to kill you. And the only way is if he extends a scepter to you and says, I'll hear what you have to say. Mordecai was asking her to risk her life and say, hey, I have something important to talk with you about. Now, this is a very kind of tricky situation. And it reminds me of something that my college pastor said as I was about to get married. He said, one of the hardest things about being a Christian as a young adult is that building your kingdom and building God's kingdom basically look identical. God wants you at this stage in your life to have happiness. He wants you to have a good job. He wants you to be a good husband, a good wife, a good father, a good mother. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to have good mental health. He wants you to have good physical health. But there's a question that should be kind of rumbling along as we go into our 20s and 30s, which is, are we striving for these things for some sense of personal fulfillment some sense of personal contentment, or as we are attaining these things, is there some part of us that knows that they're preparing us to do something for God, that they're preparing us to be salt and light? Let me put it another way. The gospel is like a magic trick, right? It shows you one thing, and then it takes it away. On the one hand, the gospel builds you up, and this is a part that's very easy to preach about. If I were to put it in modern terms, the gospel gives us a sense of wholeness. It gives us joy. It makes us grateful. It centers our life around a meaningful core so that we don't feel lost. It pinpoints negative attitudes and habits that you have and provides a mechanism for minimizing them so that you can be a more successful human being. It offers us community and friendships. In theological terms, the gospel offers us a relationship with Christ where we know that even in the midst of intense suffering and pain, somebody is with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. It offers us resurrection power so that even death cannot be 
uh, finally uh, victorious, that it will be conquered, that there's real physical hope in the midst of suffering. And with that resurrection power comes the belief in the impossible, in the miraculous, that God can do amazing things. The gospel builds us up and offers us something that any reasonable person looking in would go, oh, I want some of that. But on the flip side, it's a magic trick, and then it takes it away. And it says, I've built you up, but now I want you to lay it down and follow me. Now, the starkest example of this is the story of Abraham and Isaac. And this is a little bit strange. So, like, I got my uh, nephew uh, the storybook Bible, but um, his father is not a Christian, so he opened it up. The first thing he opened it up to is the story of Abraham and Isaac, and he read it. He's like, what is this? <laughs> Abraham, 75 years old, had a promise. I will give you a son. He's like, I'm 75. He goes, don't worry. I'll give you a son with the woman that you love, Sarah. 25 years later, he gets a son at the age of 100, and it's the very thing that he's always wanted. He cries tears of joy. But a few years later, after he had received this thing that God had promised for so long, God says, now I want you to go up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And this is where my brother-in-law is like, (laughs) on my son's birthday, you gave me a story about sacrificing sons. But what did Abraham do? He responded in faith. This is the part of the gospel that's hard to preach. This is the part of the are you ready question that fills you with anxiety. God has built you up. You have found success. You have found health. You have found wealth. But is it just so that you can experience contentment in this world? Or is it so that you can be a blessing to the people around you? And sometimes answering this question, yes, I am ready, might require you to lay down the very things that you value the most and say, God, I'm ready to follow you wherever you're calling me to go. That building up and giving up is at the core of the gospel message. Jesus, seated in the heavenlies, robed in splendor and majesty, next to God the Father, gave it all up so that he could save wretches like us. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What did Esther do to get ready to answer yes to that moment of, are you ready? She saw what her strengths were, and she made them great. And she maintained relationships with people inside the kingdom and outside the kingdom and used them all for his purposes. Now, in closing, um, I just wanted to say, maybe some of you have heard God talk to you in like an audible voice, like thunder on a summer night. And God said, hey, Fred, I'm asking you to do this, and I want you to go here. But chances are, many of us have not. And you know what's very interesting about the book of Esther? It's the only book in the entire Bible where God is not mentioned at all. Read it again sometime, but he makes no single appearance. He doesn't talk to anybody. He doesn't do a miracle. And not only that, none of the characters even mention his name. Not only do they not even mention his name, but they make no reference to Jerusalem. They make no reference to the temple. They make no reference to a divine savior or a messiah or somebody coming to save them. This is a book where God doesn't make a sound at all. And despite that, Esther is ready to obey him. How? By giving away everything that she had so that she could save others. And it reminds me of an observation that Jesus made. He was in the temple one day, and in Luke 21, it tells us he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow 
has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, there's a good chance that we might never hear God speak to us audibly and say, hey, go do this. And we might never feel this overwhelming conviction that God is calling us to do something big, do something grand for the cause of justice or for the sake of the church. But maybe we feel like this widow where we don't have much, but we're giving what we can. And the book of Esther and the Bible are telling us that's enough. That's all you need to do. If you want to be ready to follow God, give your very best and be a neighbor to people inside the church and outside the church. That's it. Jesus sees that and he says, you've done more than all of them. So good news, church. Are you ready? Let's pray. Let's just take a moment and just start at that place that my college pastor started at. Um, are you building your kingdom or are you working towards building God's kingdom? All of the blood, sweat, and tears that you're pouring into, making yourself who you are, is the ultimate goal of that just so that you can feel happy, you can brag, so that you can feel like your life was worth something? Or do you have this underlying sense, God, I'm holding on to all this stuff lightly because I know that I'm yours and every good and perfect gift has come from you. And one day you're going to call me to do something and I want to be able to say, God, I'm ready. I'll put it all on the line and follow you for the sake of people who can't help themselves. That doesn't mean we just sit around and wait. Look at your life. What are your gifts? How can you serve? Who are the relationships that God is calling you to build and to invest in so that when the time comes, you're able to be a servant? Let's just take a few minutes, reflect on those things, and our brother Peter and Dave will lead us in a time of worship.